0: Matthew chapter 5 today, we're going to take three more of these Beatitudes. uh, And as befitting the last Sunday of summer, this is the last Sunday of summer. Some of you are like, yeah, fall. And some of you are like, oh, school. And, you know, all those different responses. But this is the last Sunday of summer. So my mind goes back to uh, being a kid and going to summer camp. guys ever go to summer camp? How many people went to summer camp? Okay, so you, all you people, you know what I'm talking about, all right? The rest of you, you just watched it on TV or something, but like going to summer camp is a thing in and of itself. And I went to to local Christian camps, and I went to church-type camps and things like that. And so many, many different experiences, the bonfires and the good counselors and the terrible counselors and the, you know, things that we should have done and summer crushes and who likes who and capture the flag and all the things that happen at summer camp. I experienced those. But I was thinking this week specifically about my very first summer camp. And my very first summer camp, this is probably hard for you to believe, it's kind of hard for me to believe myself, but it was at the end of when I had finished first grade, my parents sent me away for a week to summer camp. So I was six, seven years old, Um, and they sent me away to this camp. It was a, a Christian camp because my parents met at this Christian camp. When, when they first met one another and started dating or whatever, they were both working at this camp. And so when, when I had a chance to go, they were so excited for me to go, there was only one catch. In the camp, uh, that I was actually about a year younger than the youngest campers because my parents were so excited they wanted me to go. They sent me a year before anybody else was able to go. I guess they pulled some favors or whatever. But that meant that a lot of other campers were two years or three years older than me at this, at this summer camp. And many of them, unfortunately for me, were in my cabin. And so they did what any third or fourth grader would do to this first grader who's not even supposed to be there. They bullied me all week. They did, I mean, anything and everything. You get in your sleeping bag and it's totally wet and, you know, you, just all kinds of stuff all week long. They just flat out. It was miserable. It was an absolutely miserable experience, and so what I found to do is uh, I, I hid from them, like all week long. You know, I just I would camp out in the in the camp office with the receptionist lady because I knew they couldn't do anything to me there, <laughs> right. So I just sat in a chair. Everybody was out playing and swimming and everything. And I'm just sitting in this chair like, I'm safe here, you know, all week long. And so uh, at the end of the week, my parents came and with bright faces, they were like, what did you do? How was the week? And I was like, I sat here pretty much the whole week. And they were horrified at, you know, what had happened and, and my experience. Um, but that experience stayed with me. Because I was always, you know, when you line up for pictures in school and you line up from shortest to tallest... Shortest was me, always, you know, until probably until like 10th grade. Shortest in the class all my life was me. So Mark first and then everybody else after that, you know. And so I was always that small kid, and that experience at camp just registered in my mind. Some people who've experienced things like that, where others have taken advantage, others have used their strength against you have responded like this and this is kind of a normal response so I don't I'm not really criticizing so much as just saying it's real they've decided that they don't want to be the one bullied so when they have a chance to overpower someone they're going to be the bully they're going to be the one who has the advantage and uses it and they make sure that they're safe and that nobody can can do anything to them that they don't want to do but as a six-year-old seven-year-old little kid I I took it differently. I learned something different, and it has echoed in my life, and I've tried to pass it on. Sometimes I scratch my head why other people don't get this. I, in in that camp, in my cabin, in my bed, wondered why those who were bigger and stronger didn't take the chance to help out someone like me. Why it didn't matter to them that God had given them strength and advantage and they used it for themselves instead of looking out for someone. And so I decided that when I got big, and at that moment it was more like if I got big, that I was going to keep my eye out on those who were smaller and weaker. I was going to do what I could to make sure that they were okay. Now that didn't happen for a really long time. I was always, like I said, the smallest kid. But in school, I was also the smartest kid. Like, I, I was ridiculously smart. I don't know where all that went, but at one time, I was really, really smart. And so what I did is I would watch for kids who were struggling in school, and I would try to help them, because I figured, I'm not bigger and stronger. I can't help you on the athletic field or whatever, but I can help you get good grades. And I remember there was one kid who was really good athlete, but really far from any kind of math wizard, <laughs> like really far from a math wizard. And... We had an algebra exam which was gonna determine, more or less, his grade for the first half of the year. I went and slept over his house the night before the exam. And we worked on algebra all night. The next day, he got a 96 on the exam. Yeah, and I was like, all right, this is awesome. Because of that, he got an A for the first half of the year. And because of that, his dad gave him $100. I saw none of that money. (laughs) Well, I guess I actually saw it, he showed it to me, but it didn't do anything for me because, you know, he took advantage of that. that was the mindset that I had. And I, you know, I come back to that because of what Jesus talks about here in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, this, this past couple of weeks, there's been a story in the news about a GoFundMe scandal and, and hundreds of thousands of dollars that disappeared or whatever. But that all started because there's a homeless guy that when someone runs out of gas, he gives them his last $20. And people responded to this impoverished person who had nothing. I mean, he had 20 bucks, but in people's minds, He has nothing, but he gave generously anyway. And so 14,000 people gave over $400,000 in response to someone giving $20. What kind of power is this? Why is that such a big deal? And why does that merit such a huge response in today's world? I think we need to take a look at the words of Jesus because Jesus is talking about the kingdom and as he talks about the kingdom, he's talking about how this kingdom and the way it works and the people who belong to it work differently, think differently, act differently. The the Sermon on the Mount is not just calling us to know stuff. It is calling us to act. It is calling us to be different in the choices that we make, particularly in these Beatitudes, people who have advantage. What will you do with them? The words of Jesus on these three Beatitudes, the world would look at people like this and say, you're weak. Why are you so weak? Why are you a doormat? Why do you let people walk all over you? Why would you be like that? Jesus says, double down. While you are weak, be generous. Give out of your weakness perceived weakness. Men, sometimes in church, church gets feminized and it's all about love and the love of God, and you're like, yeah, that's nice, whatever, I can't do anything with that, what do I? This is for you, men. This is about how the world got off track because God endowed men with strength in general, and men have not used it the way God designed for us to use it. And in church, men, we have strength and advantage and God calls for us to step up and use it the way, the reason he gave it to us. But so often we disassociate and I think it applies to every single one of us, but sometimes I think men get like put off to the side. And so are we people part of the kingdom who see what we have as being for me? Is there another way to look at that? And what would, we, what would that look like? What would we do? So the last couple of weeks, we saw the first week that the kingdom of God is about a righteousness that is impossible, a righteousness that you can only get by gift. Last week, we saw that essentially losers are welcome in the kingdom, <laughs> People who have nothing, people who are poor, people who are hungry, they're welcome. Welcome to come in. They are invited in. In fact, they belong. People who know their need belong. But this week, Jesus takes the opportunity in these Beatitudes to call us to a different way of thinking and acting. So start with me at verse 5 because uh, this is one that sometimes gets us all twisted around. So here's what verse 5 says. Blessed are the meek. For they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. In a good position, in an enviable position, in the place you want to be in your life, in the place of joy and satisfaction, are the people who are meek. Now, what does that mean? When I say the word meek, what do you picture? Most of us picture someone who is just so, so, you know, like retiring and shy and, and a little bit nervous and filled with anxiety that they, they are essentially ready to give up before any struggle or any fight begins playing. They are just meek. They want no part of a, of a battle or any kind of like any strength that needs to be put in. They're ready to wave the white flag right away. But what is it really? Because I don't think Jesus is saying we should all be scaredy cats who. who just cover up and huddle in a corner. Blessed are the meek. Well, let's take a look at the history of the word a little bit. In the Hebrew, um, the word that would be used for meek is the same word as the word for poor. And it meant those who don't have resources, those do, who do not have power to act. And so you would say, well, that's weak. But that, that's a little bit too simple because in the Old Testament, there is a, an illustration of a man named Moses. And the Bible says in Exodus that Moses was more meek than any person on the face of the earth. He he had this whatever this meekness thing is, he had it. So if I'm trying to find out what meek is, a lot of times I look back at Moses. And I think, what what, what about Moses? Cuz here's a man who led millions of people, probably not as weak as we would picture when we hear the word meek, and yet God says Moses was so meek. He was more meek than anyone in the world. Now, when, when God first comes to Moses in the burning bush, certainly Moses is not impressed with himself. He's like, no, not me, God. God says, I want you to go to Pharaoh. And Moses says, no, no, not me. I, I don't know how to talk. I don't know. How, not me, not me. So he doesn't think a lot of himself. He's not really puffed up. But that same man, when God says, I'm going to wipe out these people off the face of the earth, stands up before the God of the universe and says, God, don't. Not exactly weak. So Moses, and, and you know, when, when the, the children of Israel are, are doing things that are just horrible in front of God, Moses gets angry. There are times where they say things against Moses and he doesn't get angry, but when they talk against God, boy, he gets mad. So it starts to give us clues to this idea of what is meek. Jesus uses the word that would ring in their ears that was referenced many times in the Psalms. And in the Psalms, this idea of meekness is someone who is unwilling or unable to use power against others. It didn't seem to matter... This word, whether you were unable to or unwilling to, it was someone who would not use power or did not long for power to use against others. Instead, the meek person in the Psalms always entrusted themselves to God. They always said, God, you're the one who has me, so I'm not worried about it. I am going to give myself to you. And so we see people like David in the field. David in the cave, when two times God gave David the opportunity to take Saul out. Completely gave him the opportunity so that this man, this king who chased David with an army, who was trying to kill him, was right in front of David with the opportunity for David to end his life and therefore end the threat. And David said, no, I will not do that. Why? Because I trust the Lord. The Lord will deal with Saul. I don't need to. And so this idea of meekness is someone who is not longing for or will not use strength for their own sake. They will not be uh, forceful or oppressive to others. uh, One of the translations that, that we get from this is humble. Someone who doesn't believe that they are more important or a better person just because they have advantages that others don't. I think that's challenging people (laughs) blessed are the meek the people who don't think that they are better because of the advantages that they have if you're a child of God today you have advantages you have hope of eternity and heaven are you a better person because you got that is that how you got it because you were we did a measuring contest and somehow you measured better on whatever meter than other people is that how you got that Meek remembers that. Meek remembers, I'm not a better person because I'm in a better position. I'm in a better position because of the grace of God. And so meek comes from there. Another word that's used that really, really registers is the word gentle. Gentle, a person who's gentle in its truest sense is a person who has the option to be rough or to overpower, but chooses gentleness instead. They have the option to take their strength and use it how they want. But they choose to say, no, I'm going to be gentle with others. I'm not going to use my power to harm, hurt, or overwhelm. And then you turn to the New Testament, and one of the part of the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness. So we start to see this theme through Scripture about meekness. In the Old Testament, it came to mean someone who was in direct contrast to those who were oppressive. And so a meek person is someone who would not use their strength to rescue themselves, to put themselves in a better position, or to push others down. This is what a meek person is. And in fact, a meek person is exactly the opposite. It is someone who uses their strength to benefit other people. This concept sounds good, but people don't live like this. People who have been disadvantaged, when they get advantaged, they're like, finally, let me set some things right. Let me make myself back, let me set myself back up. Most people live like that. The first century Jews were no different. As Jesus is talking to this audience, he says, blessed are the meek. They're like, who wants meek? Man, we want a Messiah. We want somebody to come in here and wipe out the Romans. We don't want meek. We want to be in charge. Right now, the Romans are in charge, and and we possibly aren't going to be able to worship the way we want, and we don't have final say over things, and so we want to overthrow the Romans, and since they came at us with power, the only thing we can do is come back at them with greater power, and God is going to be that greater power so we can whoop them. This is oftentimes what Christians do and think. Even though our Savior said, blessed are the meek, we're like, no, blessed are the strong. Blessed are those who God strengthens so that we can conquer, so that we can make right, so that we can change the laws, so that we can elect the right people, so that everybody will do the right thing because we will force them to. Not meek, is it? And that's why it doesn't work. Because it's not the value of the kingdom. We've tried to adopt and assimilate the values of this world and humanity into the kingdom, but Jesus already disqualified that. He already said, keep your strength to yourself. We don't need it here in the kingdom so that you can be in charge. If you're going to be in charge, the meek will inherit the earth. It's because God gave you the rule, not because you grabbed it by power. And so blessed are the meek. And so the audience is sitting there going, wait a minute, we've been bullied by Greece, by Babylon, by Persia, by Assyria, by the Philippines. We've been bullied by everybody. We want to just rise up in strength. God, send us a Messiah who will come and just wipe them out. And Jesus says, no, we're not striving for advantage or power. What's this look like in your daily life? What does meekless, meekness look like in life? It is using your power for others instead of using your power on others. So, maybe you're a boss. Maybe you're someone in charge at work. And at work, a boss who is meek is a boss who looks out for the welfare of their employees instead of using them to make his life easier. This is meek. It is apparent parent who doesn't bend the family to whatever they like, but takes their position as parent and looks after the needs and the well-being of those in their family. It is the upperclassmen in school who uses their social clout to help those who are underclassmen. Or the star athlete looking, having eyes for those who are social misfits and including them, meek, this is a value of the kingdom of God. These are the words of Jesus our Savior to us. Is this us? It's a guy who's at a party and he sees a girl who's inebriated and, and compromised, and instead of taking advantage of that, makes sure that she gets home safe. Instead of using advantage for me, I use my opportunity for them. You see? But the problem is all of us have this selfish thing inside of us. And so as soon as I have advantage, there's a part of my flesh that screams out, yes, now I can have what I want. And we don't live in a culture or a world or a society here where we learn to deny what we want. We're almost taught that you should never want, you should just have. Right? I mean, we don't go without like people in this world's history have gone without. And so we don't really know what it is to say, let me deny myself and serve someone else. Today in in the church circle, social justice is a, a big topic and comes up a lot. And it's a huge discussion amongst churches and whatever. And I would say this, this word applies to that. Certainly, Helping people who are oppressed or in need is not the same as the gospel. Certainly it is not the same. In other words, I am not saving people by helping them have food or clothing or something like that. It is not, they are not equivalent. But Jesus' point here is this. When we are part of the kingdom, we adopt the values of the king. And so Jesus says when we receive the gospel and we embrace his kingdom, it causes us to embrace meek. It causes us to have a heart for people who are disadvantaged when my advantage could help them. It means we value people and take what we have and use it for them. It is a byproduct of being a part of the kingdom. And I wonder if part of the problem with the influence of the church in the world today is not what we're doing or not doing. It's that we've tried to blend in values and and methodologies and ideas from the world when Jesus gave us transformational values and ideas. Blessed are the meek. If 14,000 people respond to some homeless guy giving 20 bucks to some lady with gas, and Jesus says, we should be doing stuff like that all the time, do you think that Jesus has already like, told us how to do this? How to have an impact on the world? Because that's what's missing out there. Selfless people like our Savior who would lay down His life for you and I. And this is not just a call to action. This is a result of an internal change of desire and person. It's not, well, we have to impose this on one another. We have to all act like this. The idea is when you're part of the kingdom, it changes how you see your life and this world and your advantages. But I wonder if it has. I wonder if we think blessed are the meek. Because being meek is a value of the kingdom. And in truth, you can't really be meek or exercise meekness when you are weak. You only exercise meekness when you have power of some sort, but you choose not to let it control you. Instead, you direct it for the good of others. And, and Jesus says the meek will inherit the earth. That God, not probably in the... His, his, The way that this rolls out, he's not talking about in the short term or right here in the here and now. He's talking about a more enduring and lasting position that God gives for the meek to rule. And if you think about it, it makes all kinds of sense, doesn't it? If God rules this world and this universe with an amazing love that sends his son to die for lost people, he's not going to put in charge people who are all about themselves. But blessed are the meek because they reflect the Father. Blessed are the meek because they look just like their Savior. Blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. I mean, they can be trusted with it. They can reflect and represent God. It is a godly value. And so when Jesus says, blessed are the meek, if we are his people and we are part of the kingdom, we have got to let that dig into us. To look at the opportunities we have to take our advantage and our power and use it for others instead of taking advantage, giving it away. Now, people will say, well, that means you're weak. And you can say, whatever. You're just a doormat. People just use you. Whatever. People could say that about the Lord too, couldn't they? Well, here's a guy who was God Almighty and he came to earth and he let people spit on him and beat him and put him on a cross and kill him. He's just a doormat. If that's what it takes to follow my Savior, I think I'm in. How about you? So blessed are the meek. Let's go down to the next one, verse 7, because these are also people that would be seen as weak, especially in the culture. It says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the merciful. The idea of mercy is just this. You have every justification to bring fallout on someone who chose to do wrong or evil, but you forgo it. You set aside your right to have them pay for what they've done. Now, in the world that Jesus lived, as Jesus is standing on this mountain and talking to people, the Romans are in charge, and the Romans considered mercy, literally, a disease of the soul. That you do not want to be merciful, That is a sickness. That is a mental illness. What's wrong with you that you have the opportunity to make someone pay, to pour out uh, justice on them, and you would choose to not? You need to to get your head straight. Mercy, a disease of the soul. It certainly was not a value of Judaism in the first century. I think we can all remember a scene where there was a woman who was caught in adultery, and the Bible says in the book of John chapter 8, in the very act... This was not up for grabs whether this woman had been immoral. I always wonder where the man was. I guess guess he was real fast or something. Anyway, in the very act, brought before Jesus, Jesus, here is a woman who has committed adultery, and the law says stone her. Not really a mercy-loving society, would you say? They reluctantly turned away from the judgment they wanted to pour out on her, but they didn't want to. They were kind of shamed into it, right? Today, the church is often characterized by the opposite of mercy. Sinners have done the wrong thing, and they should pay. It's God's judgment on them. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. There is a difference between, at times, acknowledging that someone has to face the the consequences of their choices so that good can be done in their life versus a gleeful and superior exulting in the idea that they have to pay. As a believer, I mourn for people who choose wrong and suffer because of it. Don't you? Isn't there a part of your soul that when someone blows it and then life caves in on them, you're not like, yes! That you weep with them. That I hate that they have to go through that. And I cry out for God's mercy and I try to show mercy. It doesn't mean that I ignore what's wrong. It doesn't mean I have to pretend it's not wrong. But it means that I'm not just on the edge of my seat for God to zap them so I can feel superior to them. Blessed are the merciful. Those who give mercy away. And the idea is when you give away mercy, when it's a one-sided thing, eventually it was seen as you are emptying your bank account. You are emptying your honor to others. And so you are impoverishing yourself in the honor system because you are giving away mercy. And it is true. Mercy is costly. If you forgive someone It is costly, not to them, but to the one who forgives. To the one who is merciful, it is costly. But the merciful, like our Lord, believe that the value of giving mercy is greater than the demand for vengeance or restitution. That I believe it is more valuable for me to forego justice. The demand for you to have to pay to be punished, to pay me back, to make it up to me, mercy. I believe it is more valuable for that to happen than for me to get what I think I deserve. How is that possible? How is that even sane? Here's how. Because blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. We believe that we receive much more mercy than we could ever give. Do you believe that? We have received so much more mercy that it doesn't matter how much I give away. As a matter of fact, the merciful here is, the word has the idea of a continuous action. Those who are continually merciful, they give to the undeserving. If you are a merciful person, if you are someone like Jesus is saying is blessed here, you are someone who when someone hurts you, you move towards forgiving that person instead of doubling down into bitterness or vengeance or, or imaginations of how their life is going to be horrible because of what they've done to you. The merciful are not people who are waiting to pounce on someone's words that they say, that, that they're just waiting for you to be wrong so they can say, aha, I knew it. I've had that sometimes. As a pastor, people are very... Um, sensitive to, to doctrine and to the Word of God. And people are always worried that you're going to go off the rails and, and, and start teaching something that's false or whatever. And so I've had people who are sitting, listening, ready to like, aha. I had, I had a woman not six months ago come up to me after a service. She was the furthest thing from merciful. And she told me that I had blown it that morning, that God was mad with me, that I had said nothing right, that I had done nothing right because she knew that whatever I had said was wrong or whatever. And the idea is, this is the opposite of the value of the kingdom of God. In relationship with one another, mercy is powerful. Meekness is powerful. But to the world, it looks crazy. It looks like a doormat. But Jesus says, in the kingdom, we are blessed when we choose that. I wonder if we are. I wonder if we do. I wonder if we move towards forgiving people. I wonder if we move towards giving people grace when they do or say something that isn't quite right. I wonder if we've given up exulting or or reveling in the fall of others that deserve to fall. If we are merciful, it means that we have a heart of understanding, even for those who are making bad choices and doing wrong things. Do we? Do we? We're having some discussions on Wednesday nights. And you know, this Wednesday night coming up, we're talking a little bit about Me Too. And you know, there is this glee in our society right now for those who have done wrong, and they have done wrong in, in sexual misconduct. But as they fall, there is a glee to ripping them to shreds. I want no part of that. I am sorry for the fallout and the hardship that's fallen on victims. And I, and I, I know God can bring healing to their soul. But I don't want to destroy people either. I'm not trying to to have joy that someone's life is destroyed. That is not Christ-like and that is not Christian and that is not kingdom. It doesn't follow the king. Blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. And so this has application as we go through our life. We live as people of mercy because we reflect a king who shows mercy. We are convinced that we are in need of more mercy than we could ever give. And so when we stand before the righteous judge, we don't get what we deserve. We will be shown mercy by the King of kings. And so therefore, I don't worry so much about whether people show me mercy. I've already gotten more than I could ever imagine. And so I am free to give mercy to others. Last one, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers. Go down with me to verse 9. It says this, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be, ex- they will be called children of, of God. They will be called children of God. Who? The peacemakers. The peacemakers. Are we peacemakers? Are we people that when we walk into a relationship or we walk into a situation, the tendency is for that situation or that relationship to move towards peace or not? Are you somebody who stirs the pot? Are you somebody who likes conflict? Are you somebody who, who likes to argue? Or maybe you don't like it, but you just always wind up stepping in it and it's just always, things are blowing up around you. And you're not sure why, but everybody seems to want to argue with you. Isn't that a coincidence that everybody just seems to want to argue with you? It's like, I don't know why you just have those people around you all the time and they're just weird people that always want to argue with you. Hey, wait a minute, maybe it's you. Blessed are the peace and the idea of a peacemaker there's a lot that's been made about the difference between a peacekeeper and a peacemaker and the, the difference there meaning a peacemaker is not someone who just keeps the peace i just don't want any feathers ruffled i just don't want any arguments i just don't want any fights i just opt out i just walk away i just i can't handle it it's overwhelming it's too peacemakers are not scared of conflict peacemakers are not going to leave themselves in unhealthy scenarios and just let it be. You know, there are places where there's not conflict, but it's because one person has all the power and the other one has no say. So you could say it's peaceful, but it's not really peaceful, is it? It's just a power dynamic. There, there's a, a problem, but nobody will say anything about it for fear of breaking the peace. And so we live as not peacemakers, we live as peacekeepers. Because we live for so much less than what God asked us to be. Paul talks in Philippians about the peace of God that goes beyond understanding and it rules our hearts and our minds. This is the peace Jesus is talking about. Peacemakers. Do you have this kind of peace and are you sharing this kind of peace? A peace that comes from God Himself. And a peace that governs what I think and what I feel. God is in charge of this world We are not in charge of this world. And so a peacemaker is someone who's called to set aside strength and wrestling and fighting for the upper hand. It is someone who has a faith that God is well capable of handling this world and my life. And I don't have to try to make my life what I think it should be peacemaker values a condition where every person matters no one is superior and all of us are under the rule of the king of kings that's what a peacemaker values because he's called the prince of peace isn't he i wonder if the prince of peace has followers who are peaceful it does seem like he should doesn't it and it doesn't mean that there's never conflict that comes out because peacemakers have it's meaningless if there's never conflict right Peacemakers are resolvers of conflict. Sometimes something is so small you can just let it go. Love covers a multitude of sins. With an understanding heart and with some maturity and with dependence on God, you can just let it go because it doesn't matter. You don't have to bring every detail of everything out into the light. Sometimes a peacemaker, because the conflict is deep and long or, or powerfully hurtful, dives in and says, let's make this right. And in making it right, We surrender my right to wrestle for me, for my rightness, for someone to understand me. Peacemaking costs you. What it costs you is control. You can either have peace or you can have control. You can't have both. Which do you want? Oh, I just wish I had peace. You know, we get to Christmas time and everybody loves to put the decorations up and sing about peace on earth. But nobody wants to give up the control that it takes to have peace in their lives. Sometimes the control that you want is for others to make choices that you know will be good, and they instead make choices that are bad. Having peace and being a peacemaker means surrendering that control, that leverage. Without a doubt, being part of the kingdom is about relationship and community. Peacemakers know how to do relationship. It says that the community of the kingdom of God includes those who have been fighting and peacemakers are those who reconcile fractured and caustic relationships. We look around in our lives and we say, What does it take, God, for peace to come here? What uncomfortable conversation do I have to have? What humility do I need to adopt? What, what time do I need to wait? Lead me, in, how do we go to peace in this relationship? And we put it in God's hands and we follow him to a place of peace so we can set aside conflict. peacemakers are also working on behalf of other people, looking for a chance not to be a busybody, but a chance to be a meaningful peacemaker between other people. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. We are most obviously acting like our Father when we are peacemakers, so much so that people will say, yep, there, that's a child of God. That is what God is like, peacemakers. Are we people like that? Are we people of peace? Are we people who are willing to be generous even when we feel like we don't have anything to give? When we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, Jesus gives that prayer in the middle of the sermon, actually. And he's telling us what the kingdom looks like. So I can't pray your kingdom come without considering what the kingdom looks like. And the kingdom looks like this. Blessed are the meek, Blessed are the merciful, blessed are the peacemakers. Do we believe that? Do we embrace that? Do we let Him change us and and, and reform us and, and build us into merciful, meek peacemakers? I pray that in your relationships as we go out from here and through this day and through this week, that God will take these values of the kingdom and put them in the people of the kingdom so that we will live with a heart that gives, even when people think we're weak, even when people think it means that we are uh, you know, stupid or, or ridiculous, or, that we will live as people who use our strength for others, that we are people who are merciful and forego the right to make someone pay and instead pursue peace, trying to find a way to find a good and lasting settlement to relationships that are in conflict. This is what Jesus said is blessed. I pray that we will live like he was right.